next week on Code Switch. If you're the lightest shade of brown, because of my skin tone, I will never be in danger the way um, like actual people of color might be. Is it cool to call yourself a person of color? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely want to own my space as a woman of color, as a feminist woman of color. I'll go even further, right? I talk with Maria Hinojosa, author of Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America, and Maria Garcia, the host of the Anything for Selena podcast about Latinidad and light skin privilege. That's next week. Now, on to the show. Just in case you were wondering, you're listening to Code Switch from NPR. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. I was wondering. I'm Gene Demby. <laughs> so, it's summertime, it's hot, maybe you have AC and you just want to sit inside and read, read, read. Mm-hmm. Or you're just an all-seasons reader. Summertime reading is not your thing, it's like all year round. It doesn't matter for the next few weeks, it's all books, everything here on Code Switch. <laughs> and the books we're talking about this month are going to be about freedom, all kinds of freedom, personal freedom, freedom writ large, freedom with the capital F. So whether you're chilling in the AC or by a large body of water or under a tree groaning under the weight of thousands of evil cicadas, we are talking about some books with which you might spend these midsummer days. Which brings us to the author of a book that I read that I really dug this year, Shireen. Her name is Caitlin Greenwich. Yes, you've been talking about it for a minute. I have been. So I'm excited about this. Yeah. I want to kind of set this book up a little bit. So the inspiration comes from this time when Caitlin was working at this museum in Brooklyn that was dedicated to a settlement of free black folks who lived there in Brooklyn before emancipation. And so the museum was doing this big oral history project. And Caitlin heard this story that just stuck with her. With the story of a woman named Susan McKinney Stewart. She was the first black female doctor in New York State, and she ended up going on to found uh, Brooklyn Women and Children's Homeopathic Hospital, which had the distinction of being an integrated hospital in Brooklyn in the 1880s. All right, Gina, I'm going to help you tell this story. Susan mm-hmm. McKinney Stewart. She was well-regarded, well-connected. She was the first black woman to become a doctor in the state of New York and a legit bold-faced name among black elites. And Susan wanted her daughter, Anna, to marry accordingly. So Susan arranged it so that her daughter would marry another fancy black aristocrat. So this guy that she was supposed to marry was the son of the Episcopal Archbishop of Haiti. And Anna was supposed to marry this dude and move to Haiti afterwards. And they would live this fancy life on a fancy estate in this free black nation across the sea and live happily ever after. I love it. It sounds like a romance of my dreams. <sighs> Shireen. Sad trombone sound. You know it ain't work out like that. <laughs> womp womp. So Anna meets this cat and she cannot stand him. She hates him with all uh, of her heart. No. Mm. So obviously she doesn't want to marry this dude. And her mother sort of forced her to because she didn't want to look bad in, in sort of like this burgeoning black high society. But Anna, of course, loses that fight because that's how these things go. And she ends up in Haiti, miserable and married to this rich dude that she cannot tolerate. And then she spent her marriage sort of writing all these letters back to her mother saying this marriage is falling apart. 
Um, this man isn't who he presented himself to be. Um, he's sort of like the, the black sheep of the family. He's the one person in the family who kind of can't get it together and be this, live this life of black excellence in Haiti. He's just kind of like hanging around. And, and he's being abusive, and I, I need to get out of this. So Anna has two children with this dude who we've established is trash. And both times, her mother, the doctor from Brooklyn, comes down by ship to Haiti to help deliver these children. And so when her mother was there, she, of course, was in person and able to see really how the, how abusive the marriage was. And so after that happened, she returned to the U.S. and decided, like, I have to figure out how to get my daughter out. And the, the in-laws wouldn't let her leave. So, and again, this is a real-life story. So Susan and her daughter, Anna... They plan a secret escape from this gilded prison in Haiti. But first, they need to get her to the U.S. Embassy. And the plan that they came up with was that she would pretend that she was going to visit a friend. She would take her two children with her, a day visit. She pinned her children's diapers to the underside of her skirt. Mm. And she got to the embassy, and the embassy got her onto a boat uh. leaving for the U.S. But the bougie bishop's son and his family found out, and they scrambled to try to stop Anna from leaving and bringing shame to their bougie-ass name. <laughs> According to family legend, as the boat was pulling away, she could see her in-law's carriage sort of, like, coming to the boat, trying to get her off, knowing that she was leaving. Um, and that was how she made her escape and, and, and got here, basically, with just her children and their diapers. Oh, but the bougie bishop's family, they didn't give up. <laughs> they kept writing to her, pleading, trying to guilt her into returning to Haiti. For the rest of her life, Anna would receive letters from her in-laws in Haiti saying, like, not only have you left this family behind, but you are, you've ruined the Black race. Like, you, you're actively oh, wow. <laughs> ruining Blackness and Black people, <laughs> and, and, and you're part of the problem. Like, you are as bad as white supremacy, essentially. Okay, so we're back in the 21st century, and Caitlin is listening to the story being told in the museum where she's working. And it's being recounted very dramatically because, quick aside, Shereen, the woman who's telling the story is named Ellen Holly, and she's a soap opera actress who was a star on One Life to Live, and she's a descendant of Susan McKinney Stewart. <laughs> what? So obviously, this story has so much drama, all the dramatic beats. Yes, and Caitlin is saying it's being told, like, in this very old black Hollywood Lena Horne way. <laughs> Nice. Yes. So Caitlin is listening to the story being recounted and she is riveted. I was just, I fell in love. I was like, I if I ever get a chance to write a novel, it has to be about this um, <laughs> somehow, some way. That novel is now out in the world. It's called Liberty. And you talked to Caitlin about it. Yep. And you will hear our conversation after the break. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe explains the importance of creating a safe space for therapy. I can't tell you how many times I've had clients that say that expression, like, I've never told that to anybody. That's when I know I've made some kind of momentous move with this person. They feel safe enough to expose that part of themselves, and doing that together with somebody else can be very powerful. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com code. Comedian Tiffany Haddish is busy. She's acting, producing, but she says she's not just doing it for herself. How much generational wealth are you creating when you get to tell a story and give other people opportunity to tell that story with you? Tiffany Haddish on her power in Hollywood. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. G. Shireen. Code Switch. 
And we're back to talk with Caitlin Greenwich about her new book, Liberty. Which was published this spring to glowing reviews. Mm-hmm. It's about a young girl named Liberty. She lives in a free black community in New York before the Civil War. Her mom, Catherine, is a doctor who tends to the black people in their community and to some of the white ladies who have illnesses that they want to hide from, you know, the high society folks in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Catherine, Mama Catherine, wants Liberty to follow in her footsteps and to become a doctor, too. But, and this will probably hit very close to home for a lot of us, even as Liberty desperately craves her mother's approval, (laughs) she wants something else for her life entirely. So early in the novel, Liberty's mother, Catherine, who is a widow, is sending Liberty off to a black college somewhere in the Midwest, far away from Brooklyn, and neither of them really wants to be apart from the other, but they have that kind of relationship where, you know, they can't bring themselves to say that aloud to each other. In the weeks leading up to my departure, she did not speak to me of it at all. Mama went about her work as if I would be there with her forever. On the morning I left, she told Lenore to take me to the ferry to Manhattan. I should stay at the hospital, she said. But as I climbed to the cart, she stopped and held my hand and kissed it in that same desperate way I'd seen her do to Madame Elizabeth. You write to me, you hear? She said, her voice strangled. You write to me everything that happens to you so I can know it. I kept my hand in hers for as long as I could. Let me stay with you and I wouldn't have to write anything at all is what I wish to say. But I only said, yes, Mama. And then she threw my hand away, and the silence rose up between us again, as inevitable and heavy as an ocean's wave. Oh. So Liberty is having her own personal coming of age in the time just before the Civil War and the period after, which, you know, when it seemed... If just for an instant that a whole world of opportunity was about to be available to all these newly free black folks. Yeah, right. And Liberty, the book, is about how freedom is fragile and how it comes with these huge costs to the people who achieve it. But it's also about these fissures between a mother and her daughter that grow into a canyon. So I asked Caitlin why she wanted to set the novel in the time period in which she set it. She was able to become a doctor because she registered with a homeopathic medical school. And homeopathy in the 19th century was considered sort of like a cutting edge version of medicine. And because it was a newer practice, they admitted uh, black people and white women into schools at, at a much greater rate than a traditional medical school would. So a lot of the early black doctors in the US were trained in homeopathy. And there's a really interesting connection between homeopathy and abolitionism in that Many of the sort of most active activists in abolitionism were also super interested in alternative medicines and so kind of fell down that rabbit hole. And you kind of wink at that because Catherine is, she doesn't allow them to eat sugar because sugar is the product of slavery. And so you sort of nod at the idea that she is broadly like an abolitionist. Yeah, and she, she helps a couple of people escape. You see her help a man um, escape from slavery at the start of the book. And she's mm-hmm. in conversation with those activist circles. But the fictionalized character of her is is not necessarily um, a known abolitionist. But the the real Dr. Susan Smith, McKinney Stewart, she is super interesting because she applied for this medical school and she went and she says that she was never intentionally trying to pass for white. 
they always knew where she lived. Her address was Weeksville, Brooklyn, which is an all black enclave. Um, Mm -hmm. And that they never, they just never asked her about it. The medical school (laughs) claimed that they figured out that she was black, maybe like, I think halfway through. She ended up getting really high marks and they were going to not allow her to be the valedictorian. And then I think there was like some sort of back and forth where she was able to speak at graduation, but there was some question over her race. But she is always very adamant that she was not actively passing, that she was always just clearly in her mind black and if they wanted to read her as white that was sort of like their mistake in liberty of course in the book she's your main character she can't pass right i mean she's much darker than her mother and her darkness comes up all the time as a sort of thing that complicates her relative position right she's a freeborn black woman she obviously has some privilege she's at college at this you know this this small black college and the the people the black college are uh, as someone points out to are very colorstruck um i mean obviously uh, you were a dark-skinned black woman, but I, wanted, I was curious as to why you wanted to underline these sort of ways that, that colorism was sort of showing up in these spaces that are presumably spaces like, you know, where everyone is of the same ilk. And in some ways, she probably enjoyed more privileges than a lot of her schoolmates did. Liberty, you know, that's her tension is that in many ways, she's probably one of the most privileged black girls in America, right? Like she's growing up in this incredible household where she's really allowed to have an intellectual and emotional life and a certain level of freedom and and yet she's still sort of coming up against these questions. Um, to your original question about why sort of in these spaces, you know, I think a lot of times when, especially when we talk particularly about black freedom and black liberation, people sort of get to the point of like, well, if there were just no white people around, liberation would come immediately. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to sort of like push back on that idea in a certain way of like, even if there are, are no white people directly in, in your space, we are still, you know, in, in a highly uh, patriarchal culture that, you know, doesn't look kindly upon women who disagree. And, and we're still in a space in which um, color is still prized in a certain kind of way. And so then what would it mean to be in that space and to still have questions about who is and isn't free that maybe the rest of the people in that space don't want to hear or to, or to talk about. So Liberty is sort of trying to figure out who she is, right, in the world. At the same time, that there's a sort of larger context for Black people in which everything is changing dramatically, right? It's re- the period of Reconstruction. And suddenly, there is just a whole bunch of stuff on the table for Black people that has never been on the table before. Mm-hmm. What is it about these, like, two twinned sort of freedoms and you talk in your book is very much about like all the qualifiers that come with freedoms and all the sort of sort of difficulties of newfound freedom like what is it about that idea that is so fascinating to you i think a lot about how we define freedom and how it's so dependent on who's talking about it and and who's actually embodying the freedom so like especially in the u.s how we define freedom is so dependent on race gender your class position you know all those things begin to decide and dictate what's actually available to you when we say freedom And then the other thing that was like really a big influence when I was thinking about this while writing it is that I was reading an interview with Toni Morrison in uh, Black Women Writers. It's like a collection of of interviews from the 80s. And she talks about how in Western culture, the definition of love is, is synonymous with domination. Like we can't really separate those two things in understanding romantic love in heterosexual relationships at least and and I would argue that it's the same for freedom in the US we can't really think of 
that subject or that understanding without the idea of using it to dominate another person, whether it's your a spouse or a child or the land or, you know, a people. Um, most people measure freedom on what they can get away with doing to somebody who has less power than them. And so when I was writing it, I was thinking sort of like, what would it mean to be a dark-skinned Black girl in many ways in most of the rooms that Liberty walks into, she's going to be lowest on the power totem pole, but she still has some privileges. You know, she's freeborn. She's the daughter of a doctor. She's part of this burgeoning Black elite and she has an education. So what would freedom look like for that person if they sort of reject those ideas of domination, if, if they reject that whole dialogue and try and make it for themselves? Um, and, and how difficult that is, you know, that can be a very lonely road. Um, but mm-hmm. at least for Liberty, she's, she's sort of picking up people along the way who can sort of help her figure that out. This book is about, like, a lot of things, but one of the big sort of themes here is motherhood, specifically these little separations that happen, you know, over years between mothers and daughters that eventually become these huge chasms. And I'm wondering how you were thinking about that as you were getting ready to have a daughter of your own. Uh, sure. So I started, I, I handed in the first draft of this book the day I found out that I was pregnant, and I handed oh. in the second draft and for like a few hours later, I was being admitted into the hospital to have my daughter. Oh my god! <laughs> and then I was I was doing edits um, when the pandemic started last. My final round of edits when the pandemic started last year around this time, and she was about um, six months old. Mother daughter relationships are really important to me. That's probably like the most important relationship. Looking back now, in in my life, is the one between my mother and myself, and her mother and herself, and <laughs> sort of like going down the line. <laughs> Um, And I think what's so fascinating about that relationship is that it is one of sort of forced intimacy, um, but it can also be one where uh, you can have this forged intimacy with another person and not really know them. Um, You only Mm -hmm. know them in the role of mother or in the role of daughter. And, you know, all of us sort of have chances or or choices in our life at certain points in our lives to attempt to get to know the people who raised us better or, or try to at least understand them better and mm-hmm. vice versa, uh, getting to know your child or the person who you are raising better. And sometimes we take those chances and choices and sometimes we don't because it's too hard or we don't want to or, or we would prefer to think of our, our parent in, in a certain kind of way. And so that kind of tension is, is really interesting to me as a fiction writer and one that I really wanted to explore. This book takes place over like a very particular span of time. So it sort of begins in the period before the Civil War. So, you know, you have some people who are freeborn black people. You have some people who have escaped into freedom. But most of it takes place in this world in which it just seemed like there was a lot of like scary new possibility for black people. Right. And obviously we know how that turns out. Like there's obviously this like this great violent wave of revanchism that happens not long after that in the United States. But I wonder what you think are the contemporary resonances and, and what you're trying to sort of like nod at when you set the book in that moment? Sure. I mean, I think what you're pointing to, like it's a, it's a moment of intense racialized violence uh, or so I should say white violence and white backlash towards black freedom. And also a time of like extraordinary, ex- absolutely astounding achievement, even more astounding than our own. Like, the people were literally had just lived through the one of the most traumatic events in human history, which is American slavery. And literally only a few years later, they're doing stuff like starting whole towns and newspapers and, and hospitals and schools and 
just this incredible, intense overflowing of desire to create permanence, desire to create, create lives. And mm-hmm. it's, really astonishing to me you know what I always think about is uh when I worked at Weeksville we used to reprint copies of Weeksville's newspaper which was called Friedman's Torchlight and the newspaper at the front of it it has all these articles about you know like uh black political activities and stuff and it's written in like 19th century newspaperese and then the back of the newspaper (laughs) is a is a it's a primer for learning how to read it's it's the alphabet and it's sentences like you know Mm. how big is the house where is the house how do you build the house and can you imagine like if we said today a newspaper should be able to be read by both your most literate member of your community and also your your most um illiterate member who wants to learn how to read like that level of care and like understanding and 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 rethinking of what is what a newspaper could even be for is mm-hmm. be like we're not we are currently not operating at that level and and people were operating at that level in you know 1865 or 1866 you know mm-hmm. so we are living in those tensions currently and it's it's a place of whiplash and um as a high school student teenager and early 20s person i would read these histories of reconstruction and be like what would what would it have been like to have lived in a moment like that and to be living in one right now is i is really i still don't have an answer to it i don't know how you how we're supposed to be going about each day except i think probably just trying to keep you know exercise as much of that freedom as we can so what does freedom look like? I mean, in the book, that is like one of the, you sort of literalize it, right? Like Liberty has a, her father, she sort of imagines what freedom looks like her father. It looks like a, a very cool place in the summer, right? And a very, and a relatively warm place in the winter. What is freedom like to you? I've been asking that question to myself like every week or so during this pandemic. And I, I think for me, it's right now because of just, like what's going on in my life right now. It's like a sense of emotional safety and security of moving forward with that sense of courageousness and, you know, without fear, you know, like there's that famous Nina Simone quote where she says it's like freedom is no fear. And I, I, that's, I think, where it resonates for me right now. But I think it's an ever expanding and ever changing definition. All right, y'all, that's our show. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. And on Instagram, we are at NPR Code Switch. You can follow Shireen at Radio Mirage and me at G-E-E-D-E-215. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at NPR.org. And subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm back to tell you this episode was produced by Christina Kala and Jess Kung. It was edited by Steve Drummond and Leah Danella. Shout out to the rest of the Code Switch familia, Kumari Devarajan, Karen Grigsby-Bates, L.A. Johnson, Natalie Escobar, Alyssa Jean-Perry, Sam Yellowhorse Kessler, and Brianna Scott. Our intern is Carmen Molina Acosta. He's Gene Demby. She's Shereen Marisol Miraji. Be easy, y'all. Peace. Capitalism touches every part of our lives. Capitalism is a giant force that I don't understand. I feel that it's a very safe system. I am constantly in fear of losing my job. It is our biggest success and our biggest failure. On this special series from Throughline, Capitalism. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR.